It's Halloween night, 1957, and Peter Fabiano and his wife Betty are already asleep when they hear a knock on the door. Peter, of course, is annoyed that someone is trick-or-treating so late, but Peter gets up from his bed, grabs the bowl of candy reserved for the trick-or-treaters, and makes his way to the front door. Unknown to Peter, however, the masked person standing on the other end of the door is not looking for a treat. They are looking to murder. Hi, I'm your host, Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you that this story is nuts. much information to get a background into Peter Fabiano or who would later be his wife Betty Fabiano. We do know that Peter met Betty in the later 1940s. Betty was divorced and had two children from her previous marriage. Peter and Betty would marry sometime around 1955 and the Fabianos would move from New York to Sun Valley, California, which is just a little bit north of Los Angeles in about 1956. Peter was a hairdresser and he owned two beauty salons, and he seemed to be doing relatively well as a businessman. On Halloween night, 1957, Betty and Peter had been handing out candy to the neighborhood children. All of the children who came and rang their doorbell soon returned home with their candy bags full, and Betty and Peter had locked the door and decided to settle in for the evening. It was odd then that around 11 p.m., the doorbell of the Fabiana home had rang. Peter, a bit disgruntled by the late-night trick-or-treater, would still pull himself out of bed, grab the bowl of leftover candy, and make his way down to the front door. Betty could overhear the stranger at the door, Peter saying, It's a bit late for this, isn't it? And the stranger, a voice that sounded quite strange to Betty, that, according to Betty, either could have been a man and a woman, or a man pretending to be a woman, would only respond to Peter's question with a no. Suddenly, Betty would hear a pop, and it was a sound so loud that it would wake one of her sleeping children, her daughter Judy. Betty would make her way downstairs, only to find Peter laying in the doorway in a pool of blood. Little did she know, the person who had knocked on the door had shot Peter, hitting him right below the heart. Now, sources differ on who ran to the neighbors. Either it was Betty or her daughter, Judy. But one of the neighbors was a police officer, and the neighbor would call other police officers, and Peter would be rushed to Sand Valley Hospital. But it would be too late for Peter Fabiano, who would die shortly after his arrival at just 35 years old. Investigators would search the front porch, which was the only known place that Peter's killer had been, but not only was there a lack of evidence, there was also a lack of shell casings, meaning the killer had probably collected them. 
police would discover that there was one witness to the crime, and it was a teenager that had seen a car speeding away from the Fabiano home around 11 p.m. that evening. But the boy couldn't tell them anything else about the car or the person driving it. Police ruled out a burglary gone wrong since nothing was missing from the home. And they were starting to think that maybe the single bullet to the chest looked a little bit more like a gang hit than anything else. And they began to investigate it as such. But when they looked into Peter's past, they discovered that Peter really didn't have an affiliation with criminal activity. In fact, Peter Fabiano only had one criminal charge in his past in 1948, and that was for bookmaking, which might today mean something like gambling fraud. With Peter's lack of criminal activity on his record and the fact that he just stays clean the next several years, police quickly dropped the idea that maybe it was a gang hit. Peter's wife, Betty, had to be sedated for several days after the murder of her husband, so it would take a few days before police could question her. But when they did finally speak to her, Betty was able to give them the name of a person who might have wanted Peter dead, a former employee of his named Joan Rabble. Now, little is known about Joan Rabble. She was a writer and a photographer as well as an avid traveler. And in 1957, Joan had walked into one of Peter's salons looking for work after she divorced her husband. Now, at first, both Betty and Peter took a liking to Joan and would make fast friends with her. However, as Betty and Peter's marriage started to have some complications, Joan would convince Betty to move in with her. And so she did. It wouldn't take long for Peter to get jealous of the friendship that was developing between Joan and Betty. And rumors here, though this has never been proven, do kind of suggest that maybe Joan and Betty had more than a friendship. And maybe Betty was actually having an affair with Joan behind Peter's back. Eventually, though, Betty would leave Joan and move back in with her husband in an attempt to work on their marriage. And in this attempt, she would agree to Peter's terms to no longer see Joan again. Joan is also fired from her job at Peter's salon soon after this. Police would bring Joan Rabble in and question her in the murder of Peter Fabiano. Joan would deny having anything to do with the murder and would state that she had been home the night of Halloween, 1957. Neighbors of Joan would also claim that her car never left the driveway. And with nothing on Joan, police had to let her go. Within a few weeks, there was no new evidence or any new suspects, and it was starting to look as though this case might go cold. But that is when, in November of 1957, police finally get an anonymous tip that leads them right to the murder weapon. Hidden inside a storage locker at the Bullock's department store in downtown L.A., is the gun that ballistics will prove killed Peter. The gun is registered to a lab assistant at a local children's hospital, a woman named Goldine Pizer. Goldine had bought the 38 Smith & Wesson under the guise of personal protection. But as soon as investigators brought her in for questioning, she quickly cracked, telling investigators everything. According to Goldine, she and Joan Rabble had recently become fast friends. The two would sit and drink coffee and gossip, mostly about Joan's dislike for her former boss, 
Peter Fabiano. Joan was also not happy that Betty had gone back to Peter, a person she had claimed was not only abusive toward his wife, but also involved in narcotics and incredibly evil. Goldine, who would later admit she was a person who was easily swayed, would be convinced within three months of meeting Joan that Peter had to die. Goldine would purchase the gun with Joan's money, and Joan would borrow a car from a friend so that the two wouldn't be spotted at the crime scene. On the evening of October 31st, 1957, Joan and Goldine would wait outside the Fabiano household for the lights to turn out. It was then that Goldine, wearing a domino mask, men's clothing, blue jeans, a khaki jacket, and red gloves, would knock on the Fabiano door at 11 o'clock p.m. When Peter opened the door, he was met by Goldine, who would hold up a brown paper bag and fire a single shot into his chest. Goldine ran back to the waiting vehicle, where Joan would kiss her and thank her. Then the two women would burn their clothes, and Joan would tell Goldine to forget she even existed. Goldine would realize that Joan had forgotten to tell her what to do with the gun, and so she would hide it in the storage locker until it was found weeks later. Joan Rabble was arrested shortly after Goldine's confession. The two women would undergo several psychiatric examinations, since it was the belief of the court, according to some sources, that being homosexual might make them unfit to stand trial. Although Goldine seemed sorry for her part in the murder, Joan was said to have had a small, creepy smile throughout this trial showing no remorse for the part that she had played. Initially, both women would plead not guilty, with Goldine eventually pleading insanity due to her easily being influenced by Joan. Both Joan Rabble and Goldine Pizer would strike a plea deal that would allow them to be charged with second-degree murder instead of first-degree. They were both sentenced to five years to life in prison for the murder of Peter Fabiano. Now, in my digging, I could not find any reports that actually told me how long either Goldine Pizer or Joan Rabel stayed in prison for. Goldine was eventually released from prison, and she stayed in L.A. until her death in 1998 at 83 years old. Joan Rabel was also released from prison, but there are no details as to how long she stayed in prison, nor where she went as soon as she was released. She was never seen or heard from as Joan Rabble again. As for Betty Fabiano, she eventually sold both of her husband's salons, and it is reported that she was remarried in 1966. Betty would eventually pass away in 1999 at 81 years old. Now, some people actually believe that Betty might have had something to do with the murder of her husband, Peter, but there has never been any proof that she held any responsibility for what happened that Halloween night. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of This Story is Nuts. As always, all new episodes drop every single Wednesday at midnight. So hopefully you come back next week for an all new episode. Also, if you have a story suggestion or you just want to send me a little email, you could do that too. It is thisstoryisnuts at gmail.com. Come, And if you want to talk about this case, you know, if you think that maybe Betty did have something to do with it or you just want to talk about it, you can join our Facebook group if you haven't yet. It is facebook.com backslash this story is nuts podcast. And I would love for you to join the group. 
I don't really do a lot in the group, honestly, but you can stay up to date with what's going on with the podcast. So do that if you haven't yet. And you know what? I want to thank you guys for listening. Have yourselves a wonderful, spooky week. And I hope to see you next week on an all new episode. Until then, stay naughty, my friends. Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad.